Well, let's uh, open our Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3. Thank you both for sharing. That was super encouraging. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Uh, we're continuing in what's going to be, I hope, a month-long sermon series on prayer. And I hope that you will hear a sermon series on prayer not primarily as condemnation, but way more as invitation. That, that God is really calling us into communion with Himself to get to speak to Him, to know Him better, and to fellowship more deeply with Him. And, uh, wonderfully, to see Him answer prayer. Uh, I've always thought, man, the best part of prayer is, can't just be prayer. You see that in David. He says, Lord, hear me and answer me. He doesn't want to just talk. He, he wants to see God work. And so it's a delight to get to think about how God calls us to prayer. He's inviting us into it. But He also wants us to, to increase our joy by seeing Him answer our prayers. So Ephesians chapter 3, 14-21, I'm going to say is uh, my favorite prayer in the entire Bible. And I was listening to a few comments by John Piper on this uh, passage, and he said it was his favorite prayer in the Bible, and so I thought, well, I'm in good company. It is, it is just a marvelous prayer that helps us to see the potential of God's empowerment and God's intimacy that He wants to have uh, with His people. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, uh, let me read it to you, and then I hope to explain it to you a little bit as well. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, would You please pour out Your Spirit on us so that we might know what it is to walk in the fullness of God individually and as a congregation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the central passions of my life has been to see God grow a diverse community in the local church that would reflect in one little congregation the way in which He has purchased a peoples of different colors and cultures and ethnicities, the way he's gathering a diverse people all around a Jewish carpenter named 
Jesus. It's right there in the vision statement of our church. We're building a community from all cultures where Christ is king. I grew up very far from here in Canada, and yet our racist slurs were on my tongue all the time as a kid, as there was great a racist animosity between whites and North American Indians where I grew up. And in being saved, God just gave me a passion to see a people who historically have hated one another, loving one another around Jesus. And moving here some 20 years ago and discovering that this country, like every country I've been exposed to in the world, has its own history of division and animosity, and angst, and anger, and hatred along ethnic, and cultural, and color lines. And it's such a glorious thing in the Bible to see that Jesus has died and risen again in such a way that He reverses that terrible effect of the curse and the fall. He brings people who naturally hate one another together and He causes them to love each other in the church of Jesus Christ. And and this passion that God's given me and placed in my heart, uh, and I hope in many of your hearts, to see a community from all cultures where Christ is King is, is not, does not grip me because I managed to come up with a vision statement with a lot of alliterations and C's in it that kind of has a rhymy sound to it. It's not it at all. It's because it's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. This passion to see God save and center a diverse people on His Son is all over the Scriptures. We ended our study in Isaiah, a year-long study, with what? With a stampede of people from every tribe and tongue and nation on horses and camels and mules and chariots all storming to Jesus. That's how Isaiah ends. If that doesn't give you some piece of the burden that was on Isaiah's heart, I don't know what will. Our Lord Jesus Christ after He died and rose again, ended His earthly ministry by telling 12 Jews, 11 Jews, that they should go into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them. Now guess what? When you go into all the nations, guess what you come across? Different colors and cultures that are supposed to be brought into submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then you get to the book of Acts, and what do you see? You see in the book of Acts, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and your power will be so that you can witness first in Jerusalem, then in the surrounding province of Judea, then in the surrounding area of Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And that's precisely what you see over the course of the next 2,000 years is Jesus being lifted up, as John's Gospel says, and drawing all men to Himself. I love that vision. I love to read Revelation chapter 7 and think of Jesus on His throne surrounded by a people, a blood-bought people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. The world even loves that vision. Minus the Christ part. They love the idea of divided people finally coming together. But... The world has proven time and time again they have no means to bring 
people together. That can only be done through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I long for it to happen. I delight in all the evidence that it is happening right in front of my very eyes. It's a glorious thing to see every single mark of grace that God gives to His church. And yet at the same time, we would have to admit that this vision of God seeing people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered together loving one another in unity is regularly opposed. Regularly opposed and sadly often even opposed from within the church. The history of this nation is one suffused with racism. From the man-stealing and human trafficking of the African slave trade that bolstered the economy of this nation and led to untold abuses and later even after the Emancipation Proclamation, the horror of Jim Crow laws and injustice that's really been a huge part of this nation's fabric to the uh, horrible treatment of North American Indians. Uh, in fact, it's a Baptist preacher by the name of Isaac McCoy. He's, he's buried here in Kentucky who regularly was speaking out against the way the North American Indians were being treated in um, this nation, the way their treaties were being violated, the way the Japanese were treated during World War II, interred, uh, even though many were long-standing American citizens, over 2,000 died in that internment. This is a nation that, like every nation on earth, has a long and horrific and appalling history of racism. And it's ridiculous that a new Republican talking point these days is America's not a racist nation. America's not a racist nation. Well, listen, we've, we've come a long way. That's awesome. But that's just naive beyond the doctrine of total depravity. Amen. It's just foolish to even speak in such a way. Doesn't mean everything that happens in this country is racism. That's certainly the other extreme. But to declare ourselves free of something that's plagued every nation is beyond folly. And then uh, on the left of the United States, we see this pattern of saying, we're going to fight racism, we're going to fight racism, we're going to be woke, we're going to be anti-racist. How are you going to do it? Well, we're going to create classrooms without white people. Which is racism. That's what that's called. It's called racism. And the world, being the world, denies its sin and then fights sin with sin. God, on the other hand, acknowledges sin and fights sin with Christ. And the church ought to be the people who are so aware of what will end the animosity between peoples. What will end the animosity between hostile peoples is the blood-bought redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the facts. But it's a sad reality that one of the greatest strides forward in this nation to help end racism came from a man who was unbelievably versed in the Scriptures, unbelievably eloquent in the whole Western tradition, a man who denied the resurrection, 
A man whose personal morality with adultery was certainly sub-Christian. One of the, some of the major changes in this nation came through Martin Luther King Jr. A man who I described to my kids as one of the great founding fathers of America. Because he's much like the founding fathers of America. His personal faith is definitely in question. And his deep influence from the Christian Scriptures is not. It's not. In fact, just a couple years ago, maybe last year, Pastor James, who's been leading our service, and myself were driving home after an elders meeting, and I thought, I said to him, isn't it amazing? We would not be at the same church, and we would not be on the same elder board, and I would not get to call you my friend if it wasn't for the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And we agreed. And that, that is the case. But, but it, it really ought not to be the case that such marvelous transition and transformation is really coming from those who are sketchy on the basic doctrines of our faith. It really ought to be the case that the, the primary place where you say, now those people get it. Those people know how to bring the divided peoples of the world together. That ought to be happening crystal clear in the church around Jesus, where Jesus is being proclaimed faithfully in His death, burial, and resurrection, that ought to be where people are going, you know, primarily, I'm a forgiven sinner, and I forgive that sinner over there who I used to hate and be hostile towards. And uh, I've been saying this stuff for 20 years here at Emmanuel. And honestly, uh, at this stage in the United States' history, it's, it's real tempting just to take your ball and go home and not want to keep getting into the ring on this issue. And it's why I'm coming to you this morning saying, what should be the centerpiece of our pursuit of being a diverse people gathered around God's Savior? What should be the centerpiece of what we're doing to build a community from all cultures where Christ is King? To those many of you who've been burned by those different worldviews and ideologies that are out there, and you've wanted to give up on this whole fight. What should be the centerpiece by which we press on until the last day to see God build a community from all cultures where Christ is King? Well, I'll tell you, here's what it is. It ought to be what we do on our knees in prayer. The world's centerpiece is activism. The world's centerpiece is what they do on their feet. Our centerpiece, the center of what we do is fundamentally when we put our feet behind us and get on our knees and pursue the only one who can build a lasting, diverse, loving, God-glorifying Christ-loving church. And so I love Ephesians 3, 14-21 even more. Because what it is, is it's a prayer for the upbuilding of that diverse community. It really is. I promise you I'm not stretching this. I'll show it to you from the text. It really is a prayer for the building up of a community from all cultures where Christ is King. That's what Paul is praying for. That all these diverse people of different colors and different backgrounds and different ethnicities would together know a mutual empowerment, a mutual spiritual experience, and they would together display the fullness 
of God. They would put God on display together. And what I want you to see in this passage is that it's moved by reason, it's marked by reverence, and it's marvelous because of its requests. It's moved by reason, marked by reverence, and marvelous because of its requests. First, let's see how it's moved by reason. Well, this hard point's not hard to make. Look at the first three words. For this reason. Now, there's one thing all preachers have in common, and that's rabbit trails. All preachers since the dawn of time know the well-worn path of the rabbit trail. And Paul is no different. In fact, if you're wondering, what is this reason? Paul, what is the reason you are praying? And he's like, well, I lost my train of thought 13 verses ago. But here's what I got to say to you. Those 13 verses were from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit anointed that rabbit trail. I don't know if all of our rabbit trails can make a similar claim. But the Apostle Paul writes, for this reason, and if you go back into those first 13 verses right before it, it's, it's a little bit tricky to figure out what the reason is, but if you'll flip a page back in most of your Bibles and look at chapter 3, verse 1, you'll notice these three words in chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, on behalf of you all, you, you all of you Gentiles. And then the translators have thought to themselves, now how do you communicate a rabbit trail in the text of Scripture? And one of the guys around the committee meeting said, put a really long dash in there that just says, and now he goes off on something completely different. And so you'll notice most of your Bibles have, after the word Gentiles before verse 2, a really long dash. Essentially what happens here, I don't have time to get into it this morning, but essentially what happens here is that Paul says, for this reason, and he's about to pray, and then he mentions his suffering, and then he thinks, ah, these people are going to be worried that I'm suffering, and I better explain to them why I'm suffering, and so he spends 13 verses explaining why he's suffering, and then he thinks, oh, I was about to pray! And he comes back to it in verse 14 when he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Well, what was the reason? What was the reason? What was the reason Paul was going to pray? And the reason is found most clearly in verses 11 through 22. And I'll show you a few verses from 11 through 22, but I'll, I'll summarize what's there for you. The Gentiles, the different people groups of the world, the non-Jewish people had been utterly estranged from God and now they were family. Now they were in. They used to be far away and now because of Jesus they've been brought close. Verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So he's saying, remember, you used to be way off. You used to not be part of this kingdom. You used to not be able to go to the synagogue. You were not part of the people of God. And then you go down to verse 13. But now in Christ... 
You Gentiles who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what, on top of that, what he goes on to say is, you've been brought near in the same way the Jews have. Jews and Gentiles have both been brought near. Look at that in verse 17. And he came, that's Jesus, he came and preached peace to those who were near, that's the Jews, and he preached peace to those who were far off. Sorry, I reversed those. He preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What's he saying here? He's saying that the Jews and Gentiles, and I promise you, I didn't bring the quotes this morning. I've read them from this pulpit before. If you think, oh man, the black-white problem in America is so bad, I'm just going to tell you right now, the Jew-Gentile problem was every bit as bad. They wanted each other dead. They hated each other. There was long-term animus between these people. And Paul says, and now through Jesus, your spiritual kin, you both have access to the same Father. You got the same Spirit. He, he closes the chapter by telling them they're being built, built together into the same dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason. For this reason. For this reason. That's why he prays. Because Jews and Gentiles have been brought together because those who hated each other have been brought into the same spiritual community. They've been brought into the same salvation. For this reason he prays. And you can tell it when you get to verse 13. When the, when the preacher does get back on track, he really gets on track. And he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So the prayer is moved by reason. I'll just make one little point of application. I'll move on. You know, if, if a Christian tells me, I'm really praying a lot, but I'm not reading my Bible. Or a Christian tells me I'm reading my Bible, but I'm having trouble in prayer. I think the second Christian's in a better place. And it's not because it's okay not to pray. Prayerless reading your Bible is no good. But I'll tell you what, if you keep reading your Bible, you will see reasons to pray. If you keep reading your Bible, you go, you know, if that's true, I should pray like this. If that's true, that, that's what happens. You, you read your Bible, and God's gracious, oh Lord have mercy on me. It's reflexive. Get yourself into the Word, and you will find the Word getting you into prayer. So Paul is moved by this reason. This reason that the Jews and Gentiles have been made one new spiritual man. This is what moves him to pray. And I want you to notice this. His prayer is moved by reason. It's marked by reverence. It's marked by reverence. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now oftentimes when you read various Bible commentaries, the first thing they want to make you notice is posture doesn't matter in prayer. You can pray however you want. You can pray like this. You can pray like that. You can pray standing, sitting, arms raised, arm down. It doesn't matter. And at one level, that's true. At one level, that's true. You can pray in any shape, form, tired, asleep, awake, you name it, you can pray. But we're embodied creatures. And what's going on in our hearts, it gets expressed in our bodies. 
And Paul's reverence for what God has done drives him to his knees. Now, when you're on your knees, you are not a very mobile person, are you? If you want to be mobile, you've got to get up on your feet. But what a, what's happening when a person's been driven to their knees is they're in awe of what someone else has done with their mobility. They're in awe of someone else's activity. Very often, we can't pray because we're addicted to moving. Nothing's happening in the universe unless we're on the move. But for the Christian, the primary mover is God. And when we get a sense that He's moved and He's done something wonderful, you get down on your knees and you kneel before Him. Say, now that's great. And what he says is, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. This mark of reverence that just invades his body. His heart is overcoming his body and moving him to his knees. And he bows his knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Now there's a, a play on words, a lovely play on words you miss in the English. He says he bows his knees before the pater, who is the head of every patria. That is, he bows his knees before the Father, who is the head of every patriarchy, every group of people, all the sons of Abraham from the Jews, all the children of Romulus and Remus in Rome. He's, he's bowing his knees before the Father, who has come to be the Father of all the different tribes and tongues and people groups in the world. So in other words, he's marveling that there's Christians from every tribe and tongue and nation. And it, it drives him to his knees. Now, I'm, I'm going to say something to you. I have been convicted over the course of this week that too much of the world's activity towards race reconciliation and too much of my activity when it comes to loving and cherishing and building diversity is built on my own activism. What I can do. The music I can select. The things I can preach on. The causes I can support. And not a deep awareness that he's already done it. He's already done it. Now, the prayer that follows indicates there's more to be done. You don't pray when everything's finished. But the starting point of the prayer is instructive. He's down on his knees, thanking not, not, not thanking God for the potentiality that he might be the father of all nations, but that he is the father of all, from all the different ethnicities of the world. He has become their father. The first day of the church, the book of Acts, Egyptians are saved. Right? The first day in the book of Acts, we see people from all the different world places where Judaism had spread becoming Christians. In our own, in this room, we can start counting statistics and figuring out that there's a dominant culture. That certainly makes sense. But there's also clear indication that God has saved people from Cameroon, Nigeria, Korea, America, people of African descent people of European descent, people of South American descent, people who are Latinas from, and Latinos from South America, people who are Portuguese, of Portuguese descent from South America. God 
has done this. He has accomplished this. Can it grow? If Christ is lifted up, will more come to Him? Of course. Are there problems as people try to get along? Of course there are. But if we start from a posture of activism, there's something really important in the world and I better get busy to make it happen. We'll never be a prayerful people for this cause. It's got to start with this. Look what God has done. What has the cross achieved? It has won Jews and Gentiles for 2,000 years. And although there's been missteps and even racism infusing our theology at times, His cross has accomplished the redemption of a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And a look around this room will tell that to you, but just a little Google search on churches in America ought to do your heart a world of good on who He has saved and is saving. So He's moved by reason. His prayer is marked by reverence. I actually have another point. There's going to be a marked by reverence part two, hopefully. But let's get into these marvelous requests. These marvelous requests. There's really two primary requests. And as one commentator pointed out, a third request that kind of sums them up. There's a request for power. And there's a request for comprehension. A request for power. And a request for comprehension. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Now what Christian doesn't have a lurch forward in their soul when they hear that? I need power in my inner being. I mean, it's amazing. You, know, you, you can sit there on Sunday and, and just say, oh, I want, I want self-control to pray. And then Monday's coming. And the same old things that were eroding your self-control last week, are they threatening you this week? And even though the conviction is there now, of what might be right, very often the power to do what you want to do seems absent. Anybody find ever that their knowledge of what they want to do far exceeds the power they have to do it? You kids ought to quit yelling at each other! I don't think that was the right way to handle that. I'm sorry. In the actual moment of decision, the moment of obedience, when the porn pop-up comes up on the screen, when the irritant comes back into your life, when the dark thoughts would allure you back into depression, many of us find ourselves powerless. And Paul knew it. 
And when these Jews and Gentiles of, in, in Ephesus who were like, look at that theology. We're one new man. We're part of one temple. This is awesome. But when it came time to live out Ephesians 4.1, living with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, it's like the vacuum cleaner wasn't plugged in. The, the, the appliance wasn't plugged in. And very often our souls, they know what they're supposed to be, what they're made for, but they're not plugged into the power. And Paul is showing us what to do about it. This is not a lost cause. You don't have to go on this way. This doesn't have to be the rest of your life. You can grow in spiritual power. You can experience more spiritual power than you have experienced so far. You are not the measure of what's possible in sanctification. Even the last 60 years of your life, if you've got 60 years, or last 80 years of your life, if you've got 80 years, those aren't the measure of what God can do. God is able to work by the entirety of the third person of the Trinity inside of you, that you will be strengthened with power in your inner being. And you think to yourself, but I've, I've sinned away His grace so many times. I've asked him before, and then he helped me, and then I, I sinned it away. That's why this little phrase is so significant. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. What does that mean? Well, this phrase has actually been used in different ways back in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about the praise of his glorious grace. So now it's not just the praise of his glory, it's the praise of his glorious grace. You know, grace and glory are tied together. And then um, in verse 7, he actually just speaks about the forgiveness of sins which we have according to the riches of his grace. So when Paul speaks about here in Romans 3:14, according to the riches of his glory, he's talking about according to the riches of his glorious grace. According to the lining up with how gracious you are, God, give me power. Now let me ask you this. Who here believes that Jesus helps sinners to be saved? Okay. Now who actually believes that Jesus helps saints to be sanctified? Heather believes that. And a few of you too. What he's saying is that the same grace that met us at the cross the first time is the grace that would drive us to be strengthened again. Lord, I feel like I'm not even acting like I'm saved, and so I know you won't answer me. No, 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 no. Lord God, I feel like I'm not even acting like I'm saved, and according to the grace that saved me, would you come now and strengthen me? Strengthen me, Lord. Strengthen me where I haven't experienced strength before, where I'm so weak, where I fall into the same things week after week. Oh, Lord, strengthen me. And oh, I'm, I'm, I'm praying it all wrong, beloved, because it's this. Strengthen us. Strengthen this church. Lord, we just always keep dividing along relational lines and socioeconomic lines and we keep not getting along and we fracture so easily. Lord, strengthen us. And not just for external obedience, but in the inner man so that we actually want to. And so that we actually can put Christ on display. 
That's not burdensome. If prayer sermons are supposed to be burdensome, we're failing, right? That's not burdensome. Ask him for help. He'll give you power. The second marvelous request is a a request for comprehension. For comprehension. Right? He tells us in verse 17 that you are rooted and grounded in love. The roots of the Christian's tree, if our life is a tree, are rooted in the love of Christ. The foundation of the Christian life that we're built upon is the foundation of Christ's love. You are rooted and you are grounded in love. Every Christian is. We're rooted and grounded in love. Now, does that mean you're regularly experiencing the love of Christ? It doesn't. And in fact, to kind of riff off an old Puritan illustration, it's one thing for God to email you, hey, you're rooted and grounded in love. It's another thing for God to pick you up and embrace you in His arms and kiss you all over your face and say you are rooted and grounded in love. And what Paul is praying for here is that the church would not simply be rooted and grounded in love, which they are, but they would experience the love of Christ. Your immaturity is directly related to your lack of experience in the love of Christ. Your immaturity is directly related to the lack of your experiential religion. That's why Paul prays like this. He prays a number of things. Notice them. First of all, notice that he prays that their knowledge of the love of Christ would be experiential. Do you see it there in verse uh, 19? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And the Reformed guys go, that, no, I don't know about that. I want to be surpassing knowledge. It's not original to me. It doesn't say bypassing knowledge. It says surpassing knowledge. It actually lines up with knowledge. What's supposed to happen in a mature Christian life is that you learn it and then you taste and see that the Lord is good. There's actually a tasting and a seeing. There's a warming to the soul. That the truths you're learning actually begin, they, they get illuminated by the Holy Spirit so that they're warm truths. They aren't leftover. It's not pizza out of the fridge. It's, it's warmed so that it nourishes our souls. So it's experiential, what he's asking for. It's communal. Look at this. It's communal. Verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. This isn't just about you getting alone in your prayer room and you getting zapped by the Holy Spirit. This is us. 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 Increasingly knowing how broad, how long, how high is the depth of Christ. And on top of it being experiential and communal, it's very practical. It's very practical. Do you see this? He he wants us to 
know this love of Christ that's beyond knowledge, it surpasses knowledge, not, not bypasses, but surpasses knowledge. He wants us to taste it with all the saints. Why? Why, Paul? Look at the last part of verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that mean, the fullness of God? What do we, what do we mean to be filled with all the fullness of God? Well, fullness language, I actually encourage you, it take you 20 minutes to read Ephesians later this afternoon. And I'd, I'd encourage you to get a pen out and underline every time you see the word fullness because it comes up a lot. Christ is the one who fills all things and, he is, and the church is His fullness. We're his, we're, we're, which we're where His life is put on display. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Fullness language is really a language of, of control. Who, who's controlling you? But it's, it's also deep and rich control language. Not just like raw authority. It's more like, I'm, I'm filled with anger. Or, I'm filled with Christ. So empowered, so overwhelmed with His life and His love, that actually what comes off of me is the fullness of God. Do you realize that every encounter with you was meant to be a divine encounter for someone else? Do you realize that every encounter with you was meant to be a divine encounter for someone else? Did you see that guy back there? Yeah, I felt like I just ran into the character of God. You ever been with that church? Yeah, it's like swimming in the fullness of God. They're like Christ. They know Christ. They're dominated by Christ. They, they're empowered by Christ. They're, they're tasting and seeing that He's good. And then it's just it's like honey on their lips and everything they say and do. I, I've shared this illustration with you before, but I'll, I'll share it one more time. I think I got it from D.A. Carson. Uh, they, were, they were testing uh, how monkeys thrive. And so they put two baby monkeys in two different cages. And in the one cage, they made kind of a wire mesh mama monkey, and they stuck a bottle in the middle of it with good nutritious milk. And so the baby monkey could walk up to the bottle on the wire mesh mama monkey and take the milk whenever he wanted. And then in the other cage, they put a wire mesh mama, milk, mama monkey, but they covered the wire mesh in fur, put a water bottle in it, Warmed the milk. The monkey in the first cage had the same milk as the monkey in the same cage, and he died. Failed to thrive. But the monkey in the second cage that was getting the milk with warmth and something approximating love thrived. Grew up to, I guess, the fullness of monkeydom. You and I are meant to receive our truth warmed. And if you don't receive it warmed, it won't result in the fullness of God in you. I'm trying to get this from the text. Let me just make sure we're seeing this. And to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that for this purpose. Here's the reason why. I want you to know how deep and how high and how wide is the love of Christ. I want you to know that it surpasses knowledge for something. That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. 
you can't grow to full Christian character unless you're experiencing warm doctrinal love. Which means we ought to be on our knees for each other. Lord, there's no way for us not to divide up along old cultural lines and racial lines. Of course we're not going to get along. We bugged each other in the world. We're going to bug each other in the church if we're not changed. Lord, we bow our knees before the Father. We need power, Lord. When we're so weak, we need power right there. And we also need comprehension, warm comprehension. Do you pray like this? Do you pray that the way you'd come to know the Bible would be full of overwhelming love? I said there would be a reverence part two. Here it is, and then we'll close. Paul begins the prayer with reverence. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. That's reverence. He ends the prayer with reverence. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the, his, to him be glory, sorry, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. He, he ends just with an affirmation of faith. He just ends with, now, now may God get glory. It's reverent. He started with what God has done. He ends with what God can do. God can glorify Himself. It doesn't have to be the case that the church is always a black eye for Jesus. It can be the case that the church is the most magnetic draw to Jesus. May it be. May it be in our day. And you think, but I'm not sure he can really do that much. Well, Paul's ready for you. He's got you cased. He can do exceedingly abundantly more than all we ask or think. Now, I used to preach this like this. I used to preach, I can think a lot. I can imagine a lot. And God can apparently do more. But I'm older and I've been beaten up more times. And so now I'm thinking I need to preach this like this. I think the big problem is not that we dream so much and then we need to be told God can do more. I think the big problem is over time in our Christian life, we get what we call realistic. And by realistic, that's code for ain't nothing going to change, no way, no how, not ever. This is the way it's going to be. God, get me to heaven. Paul says, uh-uh. He can do exceedingly, abundantly, more than your shriveled up little imagination could ask or think. But in me, I mean me, I mean I know he did it in George Whitfield and he, that preacher's always quoting Spurgeon and apparently Lloyd-Jones was great too. And, but in me, according to the power at work within us, just average Christians right here. I almost said at the corner of oak and clay, but that would have been so five years ago. <laughs> and then I, I love how he ends it. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. You know, you're a Christian long enough and everyone gets their favorite generation. 
I love the book of Acts. Oh, the book of Acts. If it could only be the book of Acts again. Another guy, oh, the Reformation. Oh, if it'd just be like the Reformation. Oh, you don't know the Puritans. The Puritans are where it's at. No, 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 no. It's the great missionary movements of the 1800s. Oh, that was the generation. And we always put the work of God off to some other place, some other people, some other time. Beloved, we ought to be praying this now. Expecting answers to this now. Asking God to work now. In the midst of these racial tensions. In the midst of this divided nation. In the midst of this imperfect church. Lord, give us power in this generation. Lord, give us warmth and an overwhelming sense of Your love in this generation. In me personally. According to the riches of Your glorious grace. And for your great, great glory. Let's pray. We love you, Lord. And we want to ask you to help us pray this prayer regularly, faithfully, zealously, unrelentingly. We ask you even more that you'd answer it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.